0: Hello and welcome to Remembering Us, the storytelling of everyday people dedicated to racial justice and healing. I'm your co-host, Lisa, and I'm here as always with Ellery.
1: Hello. Hello, everyone.
0: First, we'd like to thank everyone, all of you for your feedback. We appreciate, deeply appreciate your thoughts. We appreciate questions because our goal for this podcast is to be a platform to spark conversation, to ignite reflection, inspire creation, and of course action. So thank you for your feedback. We always appreciate it and take it to heart. So before we introduce our guests today, we also want to mention that we are continuing to gather contributions, not only to compensate our guests of color, to bring in their stories and expertise to the podcast, but also these contributions go direct me to local BIPOC-led organizations that are dedicated to racial healing, starting with an incredible organization that we've talked quite a bit about, which is Tribune Justice. So please check out the link in the description for more info on how to make a contribution. And thank you.
1: Thank you. So today we are honored to be joined by Jimmy Lee Kirkpatrick, and HD number D Kirkpatrick. And starting with Jimmy Lee, Jimmy Lee Kirkpatrick was born in 1948 and raised in the Greer Heights neighborhood of Charlotte, North Carolina. As a junior at a predominantly black Second Ward High School, he was the first African-American to be selected to the Charlotte Observers All-City Team. He was a 1966 graduate of Myers Park High School, where he received All-American and All-State honors as a football player. Jimmy Lee's controversial omission from selection to the 1965 Shrine Ball football game resulted in a racial racial discrimination lawsuit led by civil rights attorney Julius Chambers. After the judge's ruling, Chambers and several other community leaders' homes were bombed in the night. After graduation, Jimmy Lee attended Purdue University, where as a freshman, his team won the 1967 Rose Bowl. As a sophomore, he led the Big Ten Conference in kickoff returns. After a career-ending knee injury, Jimmy Lee moved to the West Coast and Berkeley, California. After a short stay in California, he moved to the Northwest Oregon Coast and eventually to Portland, Oregon, where he resides today. It was in Oregon that, quote, I began to fully understand and appreciate the beauty and value of our natural resources and the need for its protection for future generations, end quote. After living and working on the coast for several years, Jimmy Lee realized it was teaching, coaching, and working with young people that he enjoyed the most. In 1967, he earned a master's degree in education from Oregon State University. Jimmy Lee worked for 30 years in many capacities in public education, including 25 years as a high school administrator before retiring in 2005. Jimmy Lee is married to his wife, Vicki, for 41 years. Vicki is a retired physical therapist. They have three sons, Anthony, Jimmy Lee Jr., and Nathan.
0: And our second guest today is H.D. Kirkpatrick, also known as B V. is a native to North Carolinian, earned his BA from Harvard, his M.Ed. from UNC Charlotte, and his Ph.D. in psychology from Saybrook University. He practiced clinical and forensic psychology for 37 years, became a board certified diplomat in forensic psychology. And in 2014, he learned from Jimmy Lee that his paternal ancestors were slaveholders, news that changed his life irrevocably. He is married and lives in North Carolina in March 2022, in part stimulated by what he had learned about his family. He published *Lars*, a psychological portrait of a southern slave master, and his legacy of whites.
1: Thank you both, and we're very honored to have you as guests today. And before we get started in conversation, we like to take a moment to ground in the space for our listeners, for us, and just taking a moment to find a space inside ourselves, whether our eyes are open or. Our gaze is gently closed and taking a
2: moment to find our breath, finding our natural breath as it rises and falls. And in this breath, feeling into our essence, our core, the being that we have always been, that being that first entered the world, feeling and remembering into that space where we are. And with that breath, finding our interconnectedness. Finding the truth that is our connectedness to each other. Links through space and throughout time, present, past. And with this breath, Finally, finding our intention, our intention for how we move in this world, and how we choose to show up in the purpose we bring. Taking just another couple of deep breaths in this place. And taking all the time we need, to slowly make our way back to our space together.
0: such a gift to be here with you both. Thank you both for being here.
3: Thank Very you for amazing. having us. Pleasure. Yes.
1: And we'd love to start off with the first question. What what was your connection like together at a young age? And what pulled you two back into each other's lives later on?
4: Well, I'll start uh, by making a stab at an answer to that. Uh, <clears throat> Jim and I were in the same high school class he had uh transferred from all black high school uh to our predominantly all white uh, high school and i didn't know him very well uh except from a distance we we shared the same last name and uh we'd see each other in the hallway and might quip uh hey cuz how's it going but that was about the extent of it uh Jimmy was in my worldview uh, a rock star. Uh, he brought exceptional talent, athletic talent, to our school in in football, uh, largely, but also in baseball. But we were never really friends. I took every opportunity to go to Friday night football games and watch him score touchdown after touchdown against uh, our opponents. And it was pretty extraordinary. And when Jimmy was not chosen for an all-star team, it was called the shrine, a game, it's a annual contest between all-stars, and seniors, football players in North Carolina and South Carolina, to my mind. Uh, his being left off of that was clearly a racist decision. And it was pretty upsetting to me. And it was upsetting to others. And as she as mentioned earlier, uh, there was a lawsuit filed, and the lawsuit made its way through the courts. And ultimately, Black players were allowed to play on the Shrine team, but it didn't affect Jimmy's year. He had to sit out because it took a while for the for the uh, case to go through the courts. But subsequent to the court's decision to open the shrine game up to people of color, there were four civil rights leaders, including his attorney, who had their homes and offices bombed by the Klan. And that by the Klan was something that I assumed was true. Uh, and it turns out that there was a FBI investigation and the Klan was implicated, but no arrests were ever made. So I uh, was looking around. I had a brother who was nine years older than me and was finishing his PhD at Harvard, and he had convinced me to apply. I, I had already been accepted, early acceptance into UNC Chapel Hill. I was pretty excited. That was my favorite uh, team. But I did decide to make an application to Harvard as under his uh, encouragement and he gave me a piece of advice he said I think you know you're going to have to write about something in your essay required essay for the application something that's going to get the decision committee's attention and there was nothing more compelling than what had happened to Jimmy Lee So even though he and I weren't friends, his story was a very moving one. And so I wrote about his being excluded by racism uh, from the Shrine, old team, and it got me an interview, it got me a scholarship, got me into the Ivy League. Um, And then 40 years passed or something like that. And. Observer, journalism, investigative journalist, was looking around and tumbled into Jimmy's story being excluded from the Shrunk Bowl and did an incredible three-part series beginning in 13 about Jimmy Lee, tracked him down in Portland, did an extensive interview with him and other family members, etc., And... These stories prompted me to to contact the Observer and ask permission to uh, get in touch with Jimmy. And so I had sent an email to the Observer, and I, my professional name I signed with my initials, H-D, and Jimmy asked me during the telephone conversation that we had when we finally connected, he asked me what the H stood for, and I said, Hugh. And there was this pause, and then he said, I know a lot about your family, and I'll what are you talking about? And he proceeded to tell me that through his years of genealogic research, he had discovered that a white man named Hugh Kirkpatrick had owned his great-great-great-grandfather, held him in bondage in Mecklenburg County, which is the county where Charlotte is located. I was floored by this information. I had grown up uh, in a family narrative that we were dairy farmers. There was never any mention of enslavement. And so then, you know, I felt compelled, of course, to tell him that his story had gotten me, this white privileged guy, into Harvard with a scholarship, which kind of blew the doors off of him as well. But that began a conversation, a friendship, a brotherhood, a research project, ultimately uh, participating in the, the production of a documentary uh, it stimulated me to write a, a, a book about uh, white supremacy. And so we're off in running. We're now about 11 years down the road and we formed a, a business called Star in the Ashes and we're starting to put ourselves out there post-film production to give talks and organize uh, conversations around white supremacy, white privilege, what it's like for a black man and a white man to talk about racism and model how it is that we can overcome issues of the wound of slavery and develop a a story that turns out to be pretty powerful and pretty healing. And we have miles and miles to go before we sleep.
0: There's so much that I um, can't wait to dive into from that intro. The, um Jimmy Lee, I'm curious because in these telling story and in you asking about his first name and him saying Hugh, then there was this Pot. and then saying your fourth great grandfather enslaved my third great grandfather. I know for me as a white woman, I'm feeling that from these perspective. and it reminds me of, just like you, the I didn't know about my ancestry. I wasn't told the part of of our ancestry that dates back to slaveholders, and so I'm curious, Jimmy Lee, how how did you get to Find yourself in the genealogical research. What yeah.
3: what you to that piece? Well, like you, Lisa, I didn't know very much about my ancestors either, and I think that's the uh, dilemma, if you will, that we all are struggling with: how do we bring this back and put these pieces together? But um, you know, I was I was um, raised by my great grandparents, um, my great. Grandmother was born in eighteen ninety one. I rem- and her husband, his father was still living. My great great grandfather was born in eighteen sixty eight, and so I was around old people and a lot of their friends who were older than than them at the time when I was growing up. So they'd always take me around visit their friends, and there was this always just this. this um, this old vibe of history of, of people talking, expressing those days. And my house was kind of a, a meeting house for a lot of these folks and friends, my great-grandparents' friends. And early in the morning, they'd come to our house and make a fire and sit around and have coffee. And sometimes, you know, they'd be praying. Sometimes they'd be crying. Sometimes they'd be laughing. Laughing and every once in a while, I would kind of get up early enough to try to sneak in and hear what these old men were talking about, and it was just um, a unique experience. So as I grew, so I grew up in these relatives passed on. I um, start to really reflect, you know, especially when my mother passed away in two thousand, about my my history and who I who I really am. Uh, certainly, growing through the sixties, you went through a lot of those kind of identity things and Black power, you know, wanting to change your name and really trying to connect with your roots. So, you know, I was a part of that movement, but I really did not understand who my people were and what Charlotte, North Carolina, and, you know, I lived and still continue to live in the same area that my ancestors and a slave lived. So uh, I just started to um, think about those things and, and something out of the blue hit me and said, wow, you know, you have a white man. you Kirkpatrick. There were Kirkpatricks here. You knew white Kirkpatricks. What's going on there? So that kind of led me into uh, looking at the issue around slavery and white Kirkpatrick. So I immediately started to look into the history of white Kirkpatricks in that area. And I did everything. I was making cold calls to white Kirkpatrick, asking them if they knew about any Black Kirkpatrick's in the area of their family history, any connection, anything that I could find. And about 2000, I stumbled across a Mecklenburg County forum online, which talked about, allowed you to make a statement there around genealogy and history of the area. And I just put in a simple statement that I was Kirk, uh, Kirkpatrick looking for information on my family that lived in this area during this time. and. I lost the website. And six years later, I stumbled on it again, and someone responded to that question. And it was a researcher, uh, first at Winthrop College, but she was also a member of a church, a Sharon Presbyterian Church in this neighborhood where my ancestors lived. And she uh, was a historian for the church, had gone through these records and found this information that a lady shared with D about Dee's family and my family a connection with Hugh Kirkpatrick. And there was a there was a document through their church sessions in the 1850s, which really connected me. And so I um had that information and started to build that information around through Dee's side of the family before Dee and I connected. So I had this information leading into my episode in high school and that part of DNI's uh, involvement, and when we met, that's how I had this information about D. And it was this D has the same name of his two-time great grandfather. I do believe Hugh Kirkpatrick as well. So you know, I, I knew this name, and for me, it was like, wow. You know, I've taken another step toward my own my own history. So you know, again, growing up in Charlotte, very segregated. You know, everything was segregated. I went to all-Black school, all-Black church, all-Black communities. Theaters were segregated. Everything was segregated. So it was very difficult growing up, as you can imagine, in that environment. And I had this opportunity, because I was a good athlete, to, to take this chance of transferring my senior year to one of the wealthiest, predominantly white high schools in the state. At the time, probably still continues to be so. With all those challenges, I did, and um, basically, D and I had this connection in high school that we didn't we didn't know about until fifty years later. So we're continuing. Fortunately, I think for me, D has been very open. We've developed an incredible relationship that has allowed us, us to have great conversations about difficult subjects and to learn from each other, to learn from each other's history, to learn from Mecklenburg County slave history, and really to share share our stories. I think the most beneficial thing for me is to learn about my ancestors. You know, you hear about things, but to actually immerse yourself into their lives, their struggles, and for them to come out of those situations to be able to Establish families and communities and go on and raise generations of, of motivated children. It's just uh, something of, of, of pride that I never, I wasn't carrying before.
0: I can relate with the never having anticipated how life-changing. It was going to be to learn about ancestry. There was never anything I was interested in or looking into. And It literally came to me. And it is the one thing that has helped me to become a little bit more full. And that is invaluable. And for me, in my journey, it's been very Isolating in terms of my own, diving into my own ancestry. So I haven't made any descendants as of yet, so to speak, through the ancestry of in slavery. And I'm curious for you two in those first moments after Jimmy Lee calling Dee back and saying, you know, I know exactly who you are. And this is how far back we go. Uh. What was the process, and you can talk about feelings, you can talk about the conversation, but what was the process like of diving into this together?
4: Do want
3: to hit that? Well, you know, during this, early on this discovery, Dee and I physically, you know, I was still out here in Portland, the newspaper articles came out, but D and I, after this discovery, hadn't really met. So I think certainly from my perspective, I, when I went to Charlotte, D invited me over to his home at, and his wife, who was also in our class, who was a graduate of Myers Park, invited me over for a dinner. And, you know, I was happy to, because again, I saw these history as a part of my history. And for many African-Americans that on this journey, you have to have that, that information, that contact. And so for for me going into it i lived deep kind of, kind of as a resource to continue my own personal journey but having you know but having met him i realized we had a lot in common we both were very curious about how this has happened in our lives and we really wanted to uh, just get a feel of how we felt about each other and you know i think that was certainly uh, a real key to where we are today and, and that we are able to take this mutual
4: journey. What
3: do you think, D?
4: Yeah, it's, I give a different answer every time I try to contemplate this question at a personal level. I was anxious because I didn't know who this guy was going to be. You know, I didn't know what his attitude towards me as a white privileged male was going to be like, I had worked in a nonprofit world for a number of years after college and ran across several black men who did their best to make me feel guilty, especially around money and privilege, et cetera. And so I had that experience. So I, I thought, okay, well, that's, we'll see what happens there. But there was this community response to the newspapers, newspaper articles that was overwhelmingly positive, and we began to get invitations to come speak. And that was very empowering and unanticipated. And what we suddenly realized is that our story was one of many stories, that that there were people who both different colors who had stories about their ancestors and their relationship with the subject of slavery. And so it took on a a tremendous life of its own. And Jimmy, on a personal level, was just very curious, compassionate, open. guy that wanted to know the truth. The truth did not scare him off. It was a green light for him and that's compatible with me as well instead of personality level so we were very compatible but anyway it's been this increasingly healthy and I, at least I like what you said of helping to uh, increase my wholeness you know I feel like Jimmy coming into my life in the way that he did and with the information that he did was a real gift I was practicing forensic psychology at the time that all this had landed in my lap. Jimmy brought this uh, life-changing set of circumstances, and I found myself becoming less and less interested in my professional world as a forensic psychologist and more interested in learning about the truth of not just our family, but slavery and Southern slavery in particular and white privilege and the hidden wound of slavery. And all these doors started opening up and some of them we've gone through very slowly and some of them we've dashed through. You know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's been quite uh, a journey and continues to be quite compelling.
1: Wow, thank you for the vulnerability and sharing that. Dee, and especially the point about the honesty before you two were reunited later, and and having apprehension, the narratives that are forced in media. I think the fear that underlies our country of a fear of retribution, right, yeah. for this nasty history that we all live with, and yet. Because of that underlying fear that I can I know I can viscerally feel within our society, that can be such a barrier, not to mention the segregation that has been a foundation of our country, and still due to redlining and economic inequities, there still is so much separation that can be there and to not cross over that barrier and to confront those preconceived notions that lock in that we're not going to be able to connect or I'm just going to feel guilty or honestly, I'm going to remember all the the horrors that are the truth of this country that live within our ancestries into who we are today. And I I really appreciate that you were open to not only learning more about each other, understanding deeper, but how you fully went in wholeheartedly to where where am I from? What is this? What? What does this look like? How did it get ingrained in me? Where did it come from? You know, because these are real truths that we each can hold and choose to deny our whole lives and for generations and cause these ills to remanufacture themselves time and time again um, without this powerful process of looking at ourselves and looking at this system as a whole will continue to replicate. These things. So I appreciate you both for the uh, the courage you have to dive deeper and to get to know each other in the realness of our own unique family histories. That alone is a powerful connection. And then choosing to share it and to speak with people about it is, I just, I appreciate you both and look up to you both.
3: Thank you, Ellery. So I appreciate that. And one of the, I think, one of the strengths of the, our relationship is that we're thinking that we're able to see from now from both perspectives more clearly. So when we have totalization, we're involved, I have learned that I have the ability to see from these perspectives and as well as my own. And I I say that because, for example, the issue around fear, some of the causes of some of the reluctance to change, and I, I see that. But let me describe another fear. I grew up in a, in a community that was totally surrounded by wealthy white community. In order for me to get to school, all-black school, I had to walk through the all-white community. And there was only in that community only one way that I could go. If I veered any place off that path in that community, I was putting myself and family community at risk. So I grew up being taught where to go, what I can do because of these oppressive people around me. The the community I grew up now has the reputation as one of the poorest economic communities and one of the dangerous communities in the city. I had no fear in my community, no fear. The fear that I had and the fear that my community had is when they left that community. And leaving that community was only steps, only crossing a street, only crossing a railroad track. You were in fear. There are places that you could not drink in the same fountains. So, my so my point is again, we all have these fears. We like to have seen that this legacy of slavery was an equal opportunity destroyer. It affected all of us. We all have these fears, and so I am happy, am pleased that I'm able to now. Try to see this issue holistically. And yes, there is fear. You know, there is hate. Because I grew up with a different fear, basically. And my community didn't go into other communities terrorizing them. But that happened in my community. I don't think the family feared when police came down their streets my community did so there's a lot of fear out there and and we all are a product of our history that's why i'm so grateful that we're able to dig into this history because we learn from our history and i've learned so much about our history and how it relates to some of the issues that we have today but i think there's there's different levels of fear and the issue again is how we face these things. How do we build trust in terms of our own relationship to to get over some of these fears that uh, are perpetuated because there is some value in keeping people afraid and keeping people separate. But, you know, my life experiences has taught me that you have to step outside of those. You have to have courage and you have to accept people and not fall into this pigeonhole of this is who I am and everything else. You know, I, would, I wouldn't be where I'm at. I wouldn't live the life that I've lived had I had those feelings. And I have family members who say to me, why are you doing this? You know, but sort of saying, why are you digging up these things? Why are you going back there? And again, these subjects were never taught in my family either, nor my schools. So the only thing I'm, I had to go on was those old people telling me these stories about those times in their behaviors, and their morals and values. And those are things that I, that I realized came from them. It wasn't something that the football player, it came out of my ability to play football. It came from these people, generation before me, who uh, set the standards. So again, uh, for me, it's a, it's a matter, of, we have to stop looking at each other as this person, this fear versus this fear. We understand fear. The question is, how do we address it and how do we address it together?
1: Thank you for bringing that to the full depth because that is so much of what stops. I know a lot of white people is this and to have a fuller perspective of exactly what are we working with, that realness of fear, what is perceived fear, what is actually just privilege privilege that keeps people quiet right and real what is real fear what is fear of not being able to provide for our families what is fear of our babies going to be okay when they're outside walking along the street so thank you for bringing that fullness to the conversation that needed
2: to be there
4: well, and one
2: I, question we
4: i had about a minute so that uh, fear uh in all caps is uh, what's keeping us apart? Uh, fear is what's driving the division in our country. Fear is what's being manipulated by one party, the former Republican Party, and is got everybody on edge. And I think the more we can honestly confront it and talk about it and talk across that divide. And not be afraid is, is what we all got to do. So I appreciate very much what you two are doing.
0: Yeah, thank you both. Yeah, what comes up for me is in response to the fear, there's this legacy of silence. And like you're saying, to face the fear is the only way that we can get past that into a capital T of truth. And I know you two go out in di- different communities quite a bit. Sharing your story, sharing your experience, and specifically, in order, correct me if I'm wrong, but to speak about the legacy of slavery, to speak about racism across race. And so I'm curious are there any values or core aspects of how you initiate this kind of dialogue, this kind of truth telling, in order to maybe guide someone internally and externally toward? Healing that brings us a little bit closer together. And and I think about just how, because of all the silence and the fear of not speaking to this legacy and the harm, the continual harm, that there's not very many guide rails. And I know in our coming to the table, for example, we have our mission, we have our agreement in every meeting. We go over them before we're talking about the legacy of slavery. So I'm curious how you two hold that. If there's anything that comes to mind of what is a value in going into these conversations in multiracial
4: spaces jimmy mind if i jump in on that sure go right ahead i think we give a a big nod to our uh director producer who put together this film a bonding truth when we were walking about in the world at large after the newspaper stories we were just kind of winging it Uh, We were responding to questions, issues, et cetera. And, you know, as I said earlier, the story itself became other stories. And so we didn't have to do a lot of work except just listen. But then we made a decision to be part of the production of a film. And our producer created this short little trailer in the production world. It's known as a sizzle reel. And we had this... uh, 13-minute film, which we could take and show that summarized our story. We didn't have to get in there and tell our story over and over again. And it was powerful, and it remains powerful. And then over time, the, the documentary was made. It's now a little over 90 minutes. And we have that to now show, and the issues and questions and concerns that get brought to the surface by the film because it's an American story, it's a Southern story, it's a personal story, it's a story about slavery, it's a story of race relations, et cetera. And all this stuff comes to the surface. And so we're just beginning to have the benefit of the documentary to this sort of the next stage where we're going to be able to take that to universities and and campuses and corporations, et cetera. So I'm pretty excited. I mentioned starting a new job. That's our new job, you know, and we're, uh, we're all over it. Yeah, I, I
3: agree. Um, as you said, all oh, I think, the, we start out. The story has been the driver and, and I try to keep my knowledge if you will, within that boundary of story. And that's where I'm most comfortable, uh, I guess, um, gets a little too complicated The more I refer to my brother D over there with this, you know, psychological background. And he's been valuable in trying to uh, put some meaning and some definition around some of my <laughs> some of my swear words and conversations. And and that has been very helpful and to have a professional that really um can get into the psychological aspects of some of these issues. has really opened my mind and allowed me to look at things more humanistically, if you will. But the story has been the driver. We've had people come up after we'd spoken and shared our story, to share their story, to offer uh, information about other aspects of our journey, and to bring up issues that we didn't think about. And so it, it is. it is... Know to push Justin to formulize some of these thoughts and hopefully, as D said, sharing them with others. I'll just give you a quick example. Um, when we had the screening, one of the screeners in Charlotte, a leading African American leader in the city who attended came up and spoke to me about their family reunion, which is obviously all black family reunion. They've had it for seventy years, and last year a white. Descended, if you will, appeared at their family reunion. And the family really struggled how to deal with this. Do they want to accept him? No questions asked as a part of the family. Or are there some steps where there's a problem? So the family actually had a meeting. and had to vote on, do we accept this person or do we not? And all of those issues around. And it just led us to the fact that he suggested Black folks has this issue as well. And so it made me realize even more and, and joyously that this is a story for the Black community also. And that was a big fear of mine, if you will, that this story wouldn't reach the Black community on that level to make to allow us to really to dig into our painful history. And, you know, those kind of things are just easily to set aside because it is pain. And so we've developed strategies and approaches and found out some of those things that are valuable to people. So and the story is the driver for us. As Dee said, now we're trying to um, articulate some of these responses that we've gotten put into the and We can continue to share and educate it if we can. Heck
1: yes. Heck yes. And I, I know it was mentioned a little bit before about Your family and what that process has been like for both of you. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is like as you both have dug into your family histories? um, What has been the response or what was it like with your
3: families? Well, Dee has three children, and I have three children. He has girls, I have boys. They're kind of around the same age. We love their extended family. Uh, We have similar connections and in Charlotte, D and I. And so, you know, when our families bonded, it really, I think, gave us from both sides, I'm sure, from both the kids, that this has been a good thing for both our families that we've gotten to know each other. It has helped, you know, they see
4: the difference in us as uh, a uh, result of our
3: family's connection.
4: Yeah. And just be uh, brief in answering the question, I had very few family members alive when all this came out. And so, I really felt some real grief, if you will, by not being able to go talk to family members. So what I know is the research that Jimmy and I have done, and it's pretty extensive. Jimmy and I, uh, he told you about Katie and I have him over for dinner. And uh, we, we talked for probably three hours and he's, at the end of dinner, he said, would you like to go see your uh, ancestors' grave sites? And I went, what? Really? And he and his research had tumbled onto the white graves of the Kirkpatricks going back to the 18th century. There, They had a big cemetery that was on the plantation land of my great times five grandfather, John Kirkpatrick so the next day we went out to a place i'd never been to before i didn't know about didn't know any history and he takes me around and shows me the whites only section of the cemetery where all these grave sites are with lots of children because the mortality rate among children black and white in those years was pretty high and Then next to the whites only was blacks only part of the cemetery. And so we began to share that tangible, powerful grounding, if you will, that puts it right up in your face about the history.
3: Now to know, to know and understand Dee's family history in Mecklenburg County is to understand the history of Mecklenburg County. And. That's been the beauty of this. We were able to learn a lot about Dee's family. And uh, right now, certainly, my own research raised me. The more I know about his family, the, no, the more I know about myself, which have led to information that I've found that have led me into different families through marriage and through records. And, you know, um, like I said, you can really go down some rabbit holes. But this is information, you know, I found two Additional generations of family through through this effort that D, this journey did I, that I would have never known about one of the slave traders and where he came and we got slave all of this information you know are information that I value and try as I try to go back as far as I can given the little information that you know that were written uh, for for blacks during that time.
4: Uh, a quick factoid: My great great grandfather Hugh, that was the enslaver of Jimmy's great 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 grandfather, turns out he was the largest cotton grower in Mecklenburg County and owned 31 slaves on the eve of the Civil War, which made him a pretty serious uh, player in uh, in enslavement in, in our local area.
0: It's really poignant for me. To cheer the story because I've experienced on a personal note in learning about the stories of my ancestry it was not only piecing together the um, the mystery the kind of ambiguity of my personal past but also piecing together the ambiguity of our past the, the, the country the global history of who we are and how we got here and something that I'm also taking and that moves me to the day is this, this deep knowing that we are all carrying each other's stories in yeah. some degree. And I guess I'm, I'm curious in both of you, where you are now moving forward, is there a, a vision that is guiding you forward or maybe even a question? like a an an inquiry that is present with you right now in your uh in your stage of how you're moving through the world
4: I have visions all the time uh two visions related to this endeavor is that our story as connects to human story will have a great influence and so it's a grandiose vision So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, But the other is uh, under stirring the ashes, we want to create a foundation that will be a nonprofit that people who are inclined to make contributions to efforts that educational efforts that address the history of slavery and white privilege and how to talk about racism how to confront it, et cetera, et cetera, that we'll have a foundation up and running with, say, maybe a year that will be able to turn that money back into the community to help with making interventions, if you will, where some money would help buying uniforms for underprivileged schools, you know. But I'm excited about that, and hopefully we can find some help because I'm not really looking forward to starting the foundation. <laughs> But, but having one in existence uh, would certainly be nice. I, I, I,
3: I mean, you know, with those with that vision D, and as we talked about those things, where do we go from here? We are, believe it or not, seventy-five years old. Class is sixty-six, and you know, from I always use my football analogy, kind of in the fourth quarter of our lives, and. It's one thing to have a vision and it's another thing to to pull the motivating factors and the strength and the courage and the spirit to accomplish those things, especially in today's world. You know, I never thought at this time of my life, growing up in the civil rights movement, that we still be where we are today, if not further back in some, it feels some. So that part really drags me a little. It feels oftentimes that it was swimming against the tide. So I pray and hope for strength. I want the world to be a better place. I think our story can help. We can be a part of the solution. And for me, that's so gratifying. I have not always been a part of the solution. I just want to hope and pray that uh, we can make a difference, that I can continue. The beautiful thing about this journey is it when it when I've started to reflect on these kind of feeling sorry for myself and this country, it brings me back to what I want to do. And to wall in the mire of feeling a certain way, but to keep on pushing. And D has been a very helpful in in that, and so that's, that's our vision and we are motivated by the actions and, you know, the involvement that we're at at this point.
2: Thank
1: you both for that. And to echo what you said, Jimmy Lee, I know our intention with this podcast and with how we move in the world is to open up dialogue and to take those moments to step over that ledge, to step over discomfort, to step into growth and not let it stop us there, but to action, to doing something about it. And we hope that through dialogue, through truth telling, that it allows us to see how we are all connected in this and how the urgency of action to, to change the world that we live in, how crucial it is and that we, we, we need each other to do it. And so really appreciate both of you for how you enter these spaces and have taken this deeply into your hearts, into your lives, of, of what you do to spread this message of healing and of change of what we can create and how we can create a different world. So want to appreciate you both for being here with us today and being with our listeners.
3: Well, thank you. It's certainly been an honor and privilege to be with you. We. Greatly appreciate the work that you both are doing. Continuous success. And if there's any opportunity for us to cross paths again, don't hesitate to reach out. This is what we are about now. And we love doing what we're doing and grateful that you're doing the same.